the communication of analytics is a huge part of the field of analytics in basketball because if you can't communicate what you're trying to say with the numbers effectively, then you're not going to see huge gains in development or scouting or understanding amongst the staff and making and feeling that high level decision making. Hi, I'm Dan Kerkorian and I'm Patrick Carney and welcome to Slapping Glass, exploring basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome the Director of Video and Strategy for BYU Men's Basketball, Keegan Brown. Coach Brown is here today to discuss the ways BYU uses analytics and video to teach, develop, and make strategic decisions, the value of shot quality data, shooting a three versus two when trailing late, and we talk one-on-one defense and finding your coaching voice during the always fun start, sub, or sit. Our membership platform, SG Plus, has received some huge additions of late, as some of the world's best coaches and teachers have added their clinics to the platform. SGTV now includes content from coaches like Ryan Pannone, Liam Flynn, Cody Topper, and Jimmy Oakman, to name a few, as well as almost 500 of our own breakdown videos. You can join coaches and staffs from over 40 different countries getting access to all this, plus our deep dive newsletter, and much more for less than $25 a month. For more information on both staff and individual prices, visit slappingglass.com today. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Keegan Brown. Coach Brown, this is going to be a lot of fun. We've been looking forward to talking to you for a while now. So thanks for making the time. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Love talking analytics, love talking the game. So I've been listening to your guys' podcast for a long time. And it's amazing to actually be on one of the episodes. Thank you. Appreciate that. We can't wait to dive in with analytics with you. And that's right where we'll start. I know that through our conversations, talked a little bit about things that you all do at BYU that are potentially a little bit different and things that have worked for your program as far as statting practice, analytics that you all look at, maybe some different types of stats that you use that are valuable to your program. So we'll start broadly and I'll kick it to you on just what you do at BYU with your analytics and then we'll dive in from there. Yeah, I think I'm especially lucky because Coach Pope is a huge believer in analytics. That's really defined his coaching career. And so I've been able to really dive deep into parts of the game of analytics that maybe a lot of other college coaches wouldn't be interested in. So for instance, in practice, we have a couple of different ways we stat practice. We take simple box score stats, obviously, like everyone does. I use sports code to basically code that in as I'm cutting up practice live. Coach also is a big believer in points per possession and kind of the synergy style stats. And so I created in sports code, basically a synergy coding window. And so I go and code every possession in practice like Synergy would. And so after every practice, our players have their points for possession and spot ups and pick and roll ball handler and their derived offense and things like that. Coach is a big believer in that in terms of helping our guys develop, knowing their efficiency in practices and then translating that into games. A lot of places to dive into. I'd like to just start kind of widening the lens for a second first, and then we'll more technical. Before you code all that stuff and before you get into, you know, what it is that you're going to look at in practice, how do you and coach Pope and the staff decide what you're going to stat and then why that's important to the team at large? 
everything that we stat, I always ask the question, like, why are we studying that? What's the importance of these numbers and analytics? Because if you don't have a purpose to it, then why are you wasting your time in tracking it? A lot of people will ask me, like, what's the most important stuff to track? And there's not an answer that fits all for everything. For your team, for your players, for your staff, your program, you need to know what's important to you and then go out and find the numbers that actually support that kind of philosophy. And so for us, a lot of the things that we measure, Coach Poe is big into efficiency. So we measure a lot of points for possession stuff and we get really detailed in that offensive defensively. We have a lot of ball movement tracking stats with assist opportunities, high value assist opportunities. And then we also just go into kind of the shot quality stuff as well. Like, is this a good shot? Is it a bad shot kind of stuff? So those are things that coach really believes in and what we decide to track to measure those kind of different things. Hearing you talk about kind of what you guys value and what's important to your program. I love to now as we kind of start digging in. Just on shot quality, how are you statting shot quality? And then what are the conversations or what are you bringing to the players, you know, to kind of drive home the point? Yeah. So for shot quality, there's actually, it was created three years ago. There's a website called Shot Quality that measures out what kind of second spectrum does for the NBA at a college level. And they also do it for the NBA as well, but mainly at the college level. And so we've been in partners with them ever since they started. And we use that data, especially in the games, and combine that with a film to really help determine where our players are getting their best shots and where they're getting their worst shots and taking out the variance of makes and misses. Because Makes and misses, it, it can be random. No matter, it could be almost the exact same shot. Kevin Durant shoots a three-point shot and he's a make and a miss. And there's not a whole lot of difference, but that quality of shot that he's taking is actually a really good shot both times. And so you want to really get that kind of measure instead of be beholden to the result of the actual shot. And so we use the shot quality to find a, the optimal process and optimal shots for our players and trying to steer them away from the shots that are kind of more difficult for them. And what is the role then that the defense is playing in it? Or is it strictly like the areas of the court that they are having more success at than others? Yeah. So for shot quality, the website, they have about 80 different variables. So they pull in play-by-play data and synergy data. And they have like an algorithm that takes into account the defense on the floor, the contest, the offensive rebounding percentage. Because if you're a really good offensive rebounding team, sometimes a better shot just to shoot it and try to go get an offensive board. So they have a bunch of all these different variables that go into this, both on the offensive defensive side that basically outputs this number that tells you if this was a good shot or a bad shot or a neutral shot. And is this something that you'll also track in practice? Yeah. So we'll also try to look at it in practice, obviously not at that detail of 80 different variables, but more so looking at the shooter, looking at kind of location and the kind of the contest quality of it. And then just like averaging out the different grades between practices and seeing if there's any different trends and things like that with certain type of shops and certain types of play types, bought up, pick and roll ball hand you know, that we combined with that stuff that I tag as well. Keegan, just to follow up on the shock quality as well, I think it's just a, we could probably spend a whole podcast just on shock quality, but do you differentiate the shock quality from player to player? Because obviously the skill sets of somebody, uh, you know, a jump shot at the elbow is better than a certain other player at the elbow. And does it just spit out one number for your team or is it player by player? It goes player by player and it tells you basically at each location what their percentiles in those locations, as well as their like points per possession. It's called shot quality points per possession. And so every time a player shoots a shot, they get assigned a certain amount of points, no matter if it's a make or a miss. And so if it's a really good shot, it might be like a 0.9 points that they get for that shot. If it's a bad shot, maybe it's like a 0.4 points for that shot. 
And then you combine all those numbers together and how many shots they took. And that's how you kind of get that shot quality points for possession. And so it goes player by player by their locations. And then you also can sum it all together for a game and see your shot quality points for the game versus your actual points and see if you underperformed or overperformed. And just to stay on that for a second, if you say underperformed, but your shot quality data is high or, or whatever it is, then I always love the process for the staff then of going back and saying, how do we fix this or how do we tweak this so the shot quality is better? After every game, it'll tell you based on the shots you and, you and your opponent took, you should win this game a certain a percent of the time. And I think there's been a couple of games throughout the last couple of seasons. I think in our first season against San Francisco, when we lost on the road, we should have won that game. I think it said like 80 or 83% of the time. And we lost it. And so when you have those things, you have to go back and look at the variance of it. But it's like the reason, kind of the luck factor. Like it's maybe a 20% three-point shooter made four threes when their career high was two, maybe two years ago. And so you have to be able to look at that kind of luck factor and not let it influence your decision-making too much, but look for actual real change that you can maybe improve your processes and practice for the next game that would help and not being so herky-jerky where you might change something and it might be a disaster the next game. So I'm always interested too, on top of that, is you guys have all this information. You know you know all the stats, the analytics. You know, I guess, with the shot quality, where certain players shoot a higher percentage shot or lower percentage shot. Then with an analytically-minded program, what does that look like, I guess, during a practice when you're putting in sets or offense or teaching what good shots are like? From Coach Pope down, what's the vocab? What are the teaching points? Is it really analytical in the teaching points or is it just more theoretical and you use the analytics maybe to back it up if need be? I think it's a bit of both. Like in practice, Coach will bring, like if it's a game before or some stats I found before, like Coach will bring some talking points into practice that he can hit during practice when certain drills come up. But a lot of the teaching points will come in the film after because we like to really combine as much as possible the visual element of film with the analytics. That way players can kind of see it and understand what the analytics are saying a little bit more easily. And so when we're looking at shot quality or any kind of different analytics, it's really talking about this is what's happening on the court. These are what the numbers are saying and trying to explain the numbers in a way that they can understand it. And that's a big part of my job too, is with the coaches, like one of the coaches on my coaching staff, they under analytics at a different understanding. Some at a really high level that I can really go deep with and some well, I want to keep it pretty simple and just get to the main meat of it. And so the communication of analytics is a huge part of the field of analytics and basketball because if you can't communicate what you're trying to say with the numbers effectively, then you're not going to see huge gains in development or scouting or just like understanding amongst the staff and making and feeling that high level decision making. And what have you learned then in how you communicate the numbers that you're giving to your coaches and then accordingly to your players as well? It's a big learning process because you have to really feel out the personalities of the coaches and the players. We don't give our players as much as we give the coaches. It's really up to Coach Pope of how much he wants to give analytically at a team level. And then it's up to the assistants who have their players. They can get a feel of how much invested or how much interested these players are in their own analytics. And they can go deep in there and I can be brought into those meetings too to help them. But for me, it's kind of trial and error. After spending three years with Coach Pope, I know what to avoid when talking analytics with him and what to really hit hard with him. He's a very inquisitive mind about the numbers and stuff. And he's going to ask a lot, a lot of questions. And so I have to be prepared for that whenever I bring him something new that I think might give us an edge in the upcoming game. 
or might help us target another player in the transfer portal. So I have to be really prepared when I talk to him, when I bring anything to him. And then some with some of our assistants, it's really just kind of really hitting just the major bullet points so that they can take that in and add that to their process of making a scout, watching the film. So they'll watch film. I'll come and bring a couple points to them. They'll kind of think on that, look at the film with that information, see if they want to change anything, and then kind of go from there. And so you just have to really have really good relationships and trusting relationships with your coaches so that they know that what you're bringing them is actually something super valuable that they want to listen to. Keegan, if I could shift just a touch, is there anything that you guys try to stat differently, like something on top of or extra that doesn't just you know show up on, say, Synergy or wherever it, you get your stats from? There's a bunch of stuff that we do track that is different. Like the past year or two, we've done, we've created like passing charts and advanced passing data, basically all the data and efficiency when players are passing from left side to the right side of the court and vice versa. We'll also look at kind of the playmaking efficiency. There's a measure out there that I found that I've used a lot with our team and then also just projects that I've done outside where it looks at your playmaking efficiency using your assist opportunities, your hockey assists, your free throw assists, getting us the line, taking into account kind of splitting your turnovers from scoring turnovers to playmaking turnovers and really calculating that into it. And just trying to find a better way to measure playmaking just because it's really hard to measure how good of a playmaker you are just looking at basic assist turnover ratios just because of the difficulty it passes in kind of your role in the offense. Keegan, just staying on just that playmaking, obviously you mentioned a lot of things that you're trying to stat. I guess, is there one kind of overarching theme that maybe you guys have whittled it down to? Or in your opinion, you think like if you're don't have the resources, like try to measure playmaking this way or look at it this way beyond, like you said, just the assist, the turnovers. Yeah. So like our basic one that we've looked at for the last three years that have really been a good indicator of success for our offense is just assist opportunities. Just basically whenever a player passes it and it goes to a shot that could be marked as an assist, no matter whether it's in or out. When we mark high in that in a game, it means we've had a lot of good ball movement. And we're over 20 assist opportunities a game. I think we've won 70% of our games. So assist opportunities have been a big indicator just for the ball movement, but also just kind of the playmakers of being able to create shots for your teammate. Because that's one of coach's big philosophies in his offense is kind of work hard to earn great shots for your teammates. Keegan, I'd like to kind of shift back to what you mentioned at the beginning, kind of your core tenets is looking at offensive efficiency and mainly you track a lot of the PPP. And I know you really factor that in to your player development. So first, if we can just kind of start then how you use PPP to influence the player development. To really track and measure player development, I feel like you have to have goals that are measurable and actionable. For example, with one of our players, if we're trying to help them develop more in the short role, we'll have goals like you need to be able to make better decisions and be more aggressive when you score and also make plays for your teammates. I'll also go and we'll make goals like points per possession goals for short roll and the short roll efficiency. And so whether it's over a one, whether he's scoring or passing it. And so I'll go through practice. I'll go every time he catches in the short roll, I'll stat out every time he does anything in there and then just track that over the course of the week. And we'll see a week by week, see if he's getting better, incorporate that with the film. So that's kind of one example of that. But Overall, just with kind of player development and points for possession, like coach's biggest goal for his players when they come to this program is to be the world's leading expert on their games. There should be no one in the world that should come in and tell them something new about their game. And we always tell that to our players because in a lot of the 
transfer meetings that we have, meeting with transfer out of the portal. We talk about analytics a lot with them because it's a big part of our program. And sometimes they've never seen their Synergy page. They don't know what their efficiency was. They don't know the different parts of their game that they're efficient at and not efficient at. And so we help them. We want to be able to help understand their games so that it can fuel their player development a little bit more quickly and optimize their growth and their development. Keegan, you've been a part of a program that does analytics really well from top to bottom. So what is it that in your mind, if coaches are listening and they want to be, say, better with analytics because there's so many parts to it, right? There's the gathering of the analytics, which is a step like for you doing the stuff in practice. There's then the disseminating it to the coaches or whatnot. And then there's the decision-making element of the analytics of what to value, what to focus on. And then there's the last step of teaching it to your players. And there's all these different parts to it. So for you being kind of the head of that and being part of a program that does things well, if someone's listening, like wants to be better, what are you think some of the more fundamental or bigger parts of doing all those things that you think coaches could focus on? For me, I mean, there was actually, there was a good article that came out from The Athletic about the Chargers head coach and his use of analytics with his staff. And something that he said in there that I've been thinking about a lot is analytics is a very polarized word in sports. You either have a good thought comes to your head when you hear that word or a bad thought comes to your head. And so for me, like, analytics is just a tool. If you saw a hammer on a table, if you ask anyone, they said that's a hammer. There's no negative or positive about it. You can either build something or you can destroy something. So depending on how it's used. And so that's kind of how I see analytics. Analytics is just facts and numbers. Like obviously there's bad numbers out there. You can create bad numbers, but just at a simplistic and holistic view of analytics, they're just facts and math. And so it's the way that you use them determines if it's going to be good or bad. It's what we bring in as a human and the human element of context and opinions. It's not the numbers are saying something. It's what we're saying with the supporting evidence of numbers. And so with that, if you want to really get like kind of get better at analytics and you have to be able to first just be open to learning, there's so much to learn. Like I'm still learning about different things about analytics. And there's so much resource out there. There's podcasts, there's YouTube videos, there's tons and tons of books. And there's just tons of people in the industry that are willing to just kind of talk and talk you through it. And so first would be just kind of going out there and just trying to learn more about it. See what interests you as a coach. What would you want to focus on? And it gets back to what do you value as a coach for your team and program? And then trying to go find that area of analytics that would help support you in your decision-making and those kind of aspects of your team. So just learning and then trying to add people to your staff that have that kind of analytical mind that give you a different perspective that can give you different insights into analytics and the numbers and to the coaching side of things. Keegan, just kind of on that note, like you said, continuing to learn. And we've also talked about how there can be also a lot of static with stats. What is the limit of how much information like is too much? You know, do you feel that kind of falls on you to like, okay, I can keep learning. I can keep going, going, but Where's the diminishing returns with all these analytics and all the information we can gather to where we have a stat for this, but does it help us? Does it make us that much better? Yeah, that's something I do all the time. Like, There's stuff I come across, actually, I find interesting personally, but I know I can't bring it to Coach Pope or else he'll have too many questions or, or it's just something that like, yeah, that's good to know, but it's not anything that drives like decision making for us. And so you just have to ask the why behind your numbers, kind of like, why am I tracking this? Like, why would I want to know this? 
for me, for some stuff, it's just cool to know numbers and stuff in analytics that it just interests me. But you have to have a why so that it drives some kind of decision. It has to be something actionable. And if it's not, then it's something that should not be spending a lot of your time on. You should really focus on the meat and potatoes that really help you for your team and your program. I think the other interesting thing with analytics and looking at stats is they drive decisions. They, you know, two for ones or shot quality. But then when you get to crunch time and you get to end of the game, are there less stats than that drive decision making in late game situations, fourth quarter specifically? What are the stats maybe that you're bringing to Coach Pope that still help drive decisions in late game? For every game, I prepare a special situation sheet. We have a, a model that also just kind of calculates the expected points for possession for certain players and the bonus and the double bonus. So we kind of have that kind of all factored out of who we need to foul and kind of the math behind that. I know for two for ones and for kind of like when you should shoot the three instead of go for the two. I remember a couple of us says go, you guys are talking that with Coach Green. And for the most part, a lot of coaches don't realize that they need to go for the three a lot sooner than going for the quick two. There's a bunch of math that like one of the books that I just recently read that's really good if you want to really understand analytics is called The Mid-Range Theory by Seth Partnow. He's with The Athletic right now. He was former Bucks analytics. He writes about the quick two and goes over the math of essentially where some coaches, like they're going to say, go for the quick two. But in reality, you have like a 10% chance of winning that game. And you have to basically take a two that you make 70% of the time and if you have a play that you can get a shot to be made 70% of the time, why are you waiting until now to use it? There's a lot of stuff that we look at late game in regards to that kind of stuff that I have ready. And then it's up to the coaches to really use the analytics, but also use their intuition, their judgment to factor what's going to be the best decision in that moment. We're excited to partner with one of our favorite new analytics platforms, Hoopsalytics a high-powered, affordable, and easy-to-use video and analytics system for coaches of all levels at a fraction of the price of some of the other platforms available. Unlike other systems, Hoopsalytics lets you create fully customizable events and sets and analyzes them for you through video link stats, interactive shot charts, and other tools. Zero programming is required. For a free trial and to receive a 25% discount on the product, visit hoopsalytics.com slash glass. That's hoopsalytics.com slash glass. And now back to our conversation. You mentioned it, so I, I kind of have to scratch that itch about the late game. And, and you mentioned Coach Crean's conversation, and we did talk about different time on the clock with him when he would think about extending the game with a quick two versus going for a three. And I think we said somewhere between 10 and 15 seconds. Let's say they're down four or five in the decision to go for a two versus a three. The math you're talking about where you're saying coaches need to shoot a three a lot sooner, what time frame does the math say, hey, if you're down two possessions, the three is probably a better chance to win versus a quick two? I think from the book, if I remember right, because of the ultimate goal, and one of the big things is like the ultimate goal for your game is you're trying to win the game. You're not trying to extend it out. Maybe sometimes you are, depending on if you're like a, a huge favorite that you're trying to just get to overtime because you think an extra five minutes can overpower an underdog. But for the most part, in the game, you're trying to win the game. You're not trying just to make the game go as long as possible. So with the math, if I remember Brad, I think he was saying anywhere in like the 30 to 40 second range is when you should start thinking about it. Just because the win probability that it goes into it doesn't change a whole lot. If you're already down two possessions at that time, 
you're going to lose 90 something percent of the time. And if you go for the quick two and you make it, you're still going to lose 88, 89% of the time. So it's not, it doesn't make a huge difference. That's kind of where the math says. But again, it's what the coaches think with what's happening on the court and the context. Did they just miss their last six free throws? So actually going for a quick two and fouling them is actually a good idea. Is it something where you think you can get an and one real quick? I mean, there's a bunch of just different factors you have to take into account. But for the most part, going for the three a lot quicker and sooner is the better math play of trying to win the game than going for a quick two. And I know Coach Crean mentioned too, the timeout situation was a big factor for him as well. If they're able to potentially, you know, in his sense, get a quick two, call a timeout, set up some kind of press was big for him. When you guys talk about this stuff with BYU, how do you work on this in practice so that the guys understand situationally, I guess the math, but also then the strategy? I mean, how do you guys work on that? Yeah, we do special situations in practice. The coach will explain kind of the math behind it because you have to try to get buy-in from the players about it. Like if they, if coach tells them to do something randomly and it doesn't work, then they'll question kind of why did we ever do that? And so if you give them kind of the reasons why, and like I said, we're a big analytics program. And so they understand that numbers really drive our stuff. And so when they hear the numbers explanation of stuff, they can really buy into it and understand it. And so we practice it in special situations. We've done it over the last couple of years, just so that we're ready, whether it's fouling to get a two for one, whether it's to basically see the shot clock and roll it. And so it wastes time off the game clock, but not the shot clocks. And then you basically eliminate a two for one for the other team, things like that. And so we practice different special situations, whether it's end of half, end of game, and explain kind of the, if we're trying to implement a new kind of weird strategy based on analytics, they understand why we're trying to do it. Keegan, just quickly on those two for ones, what is the time you're telling your guys were like, these are two for one situations? And then conversely, are you guys thinking strategy wise defensively how you guys can get the ball back or do things to get a two for one situation? Yeah. For us, if coach realized we have a two for one opportunity, we'll go just straight to kind of our two for one quick hitter play and just get the best shot we can. With Alex, it was a lot easier this year. We might have to change it up a little bit because we don't have a go-to score. But when we recognize it in-game, we'll go for it. Trying to just add value among the margins across the season can equal maybe one or two extra wins. Defensively, we'll also try to be a little bit more aggressive if we're trying to force a steal or trying to force a turnover or anything like that. There are things that we do in practice that try to go into that as long as you recognize it on the bench and as long as coach feels like it's a good opportune moment to try and do it as well, just based on what kind of how the game's been going with the first half. Keegan, last question before we move on. Do you guys stat two-for-one opportunities and your efficiency in two-for-ones throughout the season? Yeah, it's something that I have tracked the last like three seasons and we'll continue to track this year. We're just like, look at basically every game and look at the different opportunities we had and just make a basic summary for coach where... Is this something we could have gone for if we didn't go for it? Or is this something we did go for and how did it end up? Different opportunities, the different conversions and all that kind of stuff. Just just give us grades and then be able to go back into the film and watch how we did as well as just go back to the film and watch the different special situations in the NBA and college and stuff. Like just the reps you get from just watching and understanding the decision-making and talking as a staff of this is what we would do if we were in this situation and that kind of stuff too. Keegan, this has been awesome so far. Thanks for all your thoughts and for being so thorough with all that stuff. We want to transition now to a segment we call Start, Sub, or Sit. And so 
what we'll do is we'll give you three different basketball topics, ask you to start one, sub one, and then sit one, and then we'll discuss from there. So if you're ready, we'll dive in. Yep, let's do it. All right, Keegan. Our first one, we're going to be looking at one-on-one isolation defense, and we've kind of coined this one, let's get real here. So we're going to give you three things, realistic expectations. So what is your start subset in terms of what is the most kind of realistic expectation you can place on your defender when he's in the one-on-one isolated situation? Is it just competing on the first two dribbles, trying to contain the first two dribbles? Is it being able to force or funnel a direction to the overall team defensive scheme? Or is it just forcing a contested jumper? Just don't give up a rim attack. If you can give a forced contested jumper, you've done your job. I probably have to go start the contested jumper. I'd probably sub the contain the first two dribbles and sit the funnel team defense. Just overall, I think with the start, at the end of the day, when it comes to one-on-one, if you don't have the best defenders, like the contested jumper is the best thing you can give up in isolation defense. And if they make it, they make it, but you can kind of live with it. And so if you can force that every single time, like Coach Pope will take that every single time. And then with the sub, contain the first two dribbles, any type of blow by puts a real stress on your defense. And so if you're able to at least contain the first two dribbles and give your time, your defense to see it and react, it gives your defense a better chance to kind of react if there's a, a one pass away out of the ISO or help if there's a nut, if he does go by at the third or fourth dribble, it helps your defense be there for that player. And then the sit with the funneling, there's some teams that do have like a no middle kind of defense like Texas Tech, or you have like a San Diego State, Virginia pack line where they're trying to force them into the middle, into the gaps to try to force turnovers. We don't really have something like that. We're more just focused on just squaring up and making sure that you kind of handle your matchup. And so that's kind of where I would go with that. And my follow-up is, again, kind of turning it back to stats and looking at the PPP. You know, what are you showing your players defensively? You know, would it be in this case their matchup and the strengths of their opponent, their PPP, or is it more so just overall like, (laughs) here's your PPP when defending one-on-one and we got to get it better? It'll be both. We do one-on-one segments in practice, and so we'll have their efficiencies and their one-on-one matchups. If we're going into a scout and we're we're facing a really high, heavy ISO player in the scout, we'll break down their ISO offense for all of our guys for our potential matchups so they have an understanding of the different tendencies they would have when they get you in isolation. And then we'll also just look at your overall on the season and games in isolation. Like, What are your numbers in isolation defense? Let's look at the film of why those numbers are like that. What are some simple ways in practice we can basically change a couple different things where it might actually help you guard better in space in one one When you give them these numbers, I guess, you know, obviously the most important thing is then, okay, how are you going to improve it? So what do you usually find yourself or you as a staff working on when you have a player whose strength is not one-on-one defense? A big philosophy for coaches, it's if one of our players is an ISOD, is that it's one against five, not one-on-one. And so it really puts the onus on the other four players on the court to be able to be talking to them, telling them like, hey, come force on my side, force on my side if they have bad spacing to their left side. It's a team effort in terms of guarding a one-on-one player that coach really emphasized. And then it just basically you know, it comes down to more individual stuff. We really work on just that their footwork they get with our strength coach. They can maybe they might go put in some extra reps in their footwork, work with one of the assistants and being able to help with their footwork or work on one-on-one drills. So it kind of just kind of goes in that avenue. Uh, just real quick, you said work on their footwork. Interested to hear what that's 
like our strength coach, Coach Short, there's a bunch of different things he does, which is like react with the ball. Like you drop the ball and they have to react and go get it. We have different like lighting systems that they do that work their reactivity to the lights and kind of their explosiveness. He just has a bunch of different drills that focuses on different aspects of the footwork that if there's certain things we're seeing on film with their footwork that's kind of lagging, then we can go to Coach Short, have a meeting with him, talk about the areas of improvement, and he can come up with a couple of drills that really focuses that area of the footwork that could help bring some personal growth for the player. Keegan, our next start subset will move along for you. This one is about finding your coaching voice or, you know, for younger coaches as they get, you know, farther along in their career, how basically they can feel more confident with their own coaching voice. So start, sub, or sit these three different kind of not big in front of the team areas that they can find their coaching voice, but kind of off to the side type stuff. Start, sub, or sit one-on-one film sessions with a player. So just you and a player working through the film. The second option is player development sessions. So maybe one-on-one, maybe, you know, one with two, but small sessions with the player. Or the third option is in practice side huddles. So practice is going on, player comes off to the side and maybe you're coaching them up on the side rather than, you know, out in front of everybody. For me, I'd probably go start the film. I would sub the player development sessions and then sit the in practice side huddles. You mentioned the one-on-one film sessions, you would start that. Why would you start it? And then my follow-up after that is sometimes those film sessions are giving critical feedback of what things are not doing well. And so how you kind of broker that to make sure that the relationship is strengthened, even when you're giving them, you know, potentially stuff they don't want to hear. Yeah. So I started that just because within our program, we watch team film, but a lot of the film that goes on is a lot on individual basis with our assistant coaches. And then with me sometimes too. And that's where you really can get an understanding inside a player's mind of things that they're thinking on the court. There's also a good place too, where they can express different feelings or stuff that may be off the court that you may or not aware of. And so you kind of build that kind of trusting relationship within that kind of film session. And so for me, like you just get a really good connection with a player watching film because they're there because they want to get better. And so they're open to kind of conversation and open to that kind of stuff. And then if you have that relationship, it could be really effective. When talking just like critical, trying to make them better and stuff like that and pointing stuff out, it goes back to when we're talking about analytics and communication, like you have to know the personality of the player that you're talking to and you have to know what are things to avoid when talking to them and what are some things that you can really hit that are super effective with them in terms of communicating those kind of flaws and stuff with their game. And so again, it comes down to that relationship where you have to really build that sense of trust so that when you do get to those hard conversations of you're not playing well enough, it's coming from a place of, I'm not trying to be critical. I'm trying to help you. I'm kind of a place of love and for your player to help them try to get to that next level instead of just talking down on them. All right, Keegan, our last one for you, we call this our tough to teach and tough to teach in terms of set execution. So whether you're coming out of an ATO, a design play, tough to teach that to get that execute that set. Is it the spacing? Is it the timing of the set? Or is it the counters being able to continue playing when a defense takes you out of the design set or action? I think you'd probably go start timing, sub counters and sit spacing. I'd like to just start with 
your timing and just how you build timing into your sets, into your offense. Coach Pope does a lot of five on with our guys with the different sets we go through, as well as kind of with our base offenses. A lot of five on a lot of three on three, a lot of just five on five too. Like just being able to get a feel for how different players are moving on the court, especially with our team this year. There's a ton of new guys. And so they just have to play with each other just so they get a feel of how they're moving on the court. Does this player move really fast on the court? Does this player not cut as hard as maybe some of my former teammates? That kind of stuff. And so it's really just trying to get a feel for that. And then in the 5 on as well, Coach Pope tries to have him go as much as game speed as possible just so that there's no confusion with that timing when it comes to going from a practice to a game. Keegan, you kind of mentioned how things might be different this year because you have a younger team and you don't have someone like Alex like last year who could kind of just manage a game more by himself with the players around him. And thinking about this season, just like late game situations, looking at bringing analytics, bringing in set execution with a younger team and trying to teach them how to win and play in late game when you don't have a dominant ball handler like you did in the past that can just you know, sort of manage and make things like a Chris Paul fashion happen. How your staff is thinking about that change this year? Yeah, I mean, it's something that's kind of dominated the conversation this whole summer in terms of our summer workouts, thinking about how we maybe want to approach the offensive differently compared to the last couple of years. Like this year, we have a lot more length than BYU's ever had in a long time. We might not be the tallest, but we have tons and tons of length. We have a lot more shooting than the last two years. And so trying to leverage those kind of two aspects to try to make our offense a little bit harder to guard. I mean, we, like I said, we don't have Alex, but that actually might be a benefit this year where if we have four different shooters that really can space and really know how to go through the offense and really punish defenses for overhelping or things like that, it might be something super beneficial for us. And so it's just been something that we've really harped on and talked about a lot this summer and we'll continue to talk about through the preseason as we continue to work with our team and try to figure out their weaknesses and strengths. And then once we get closer to the season, we'll start implementing kind of, like you said, those late game situations, special situations in practice, see what works and what doesn't work. And then when we get to the season, just hopefully it pans out and we just go trial and error game to game. And for those listening, we're talking about Alex Barcelo, who he was with the Raptors in the summer league. Do you know where he's ending up? Yeah, he just signed with a team out in Greece. Just maybe kind of tying it all together. And you mentioned, you know, this year you're going to have a different team. You have a different, maybe some more shooting length, some physical traits. Is the makeup of this incoming team change anything of maybe the fundamental, the core principles of what you as a staff want to track, want to analyze? Is it changing the makeup of how your analytics have been in the past? For the most part, it's going to stay relatively the same, but there is a lot that I've thought about that I'm going to change and track that is new to this specific personnel set, just based on some of the new philosophies that we're going to implement offensively and defensively. It just goes back to what we've talked about with coaches. Like You got to know what you value as a program, as a coach, as a staff with your players, and does it make sense to track those different things? And that's something that a lot of the stuff that we already do have tracked the past three years does kind of mesh pretty well with this group, but there's also some new stuff that I'm going to track as well that would really, really help us this year. Keegan, you're off the start, suburb, sit, hot seat. So thanks for playing that with us. That was a lot of fun. We've got one more question before we get you out of here. Thank you very much for your time and your thoughts. This was, yeah. this was a really fun conversation. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it and just love talking the game, love talking analytics. Last question for you. One we ask all the guests is, 
What's the best investment that you've made in your career as a coach? Yeah, I think the best investment I've made is just the commitment to being kind of a lifelong learner. Being able, like, there's so much information out there for learning about basketball and the, and the industry, but also just learning about life in general. And so there's hours of podcasts and YouTube videos and books. And then just, just people you connect with. I love connecting with people around the industry and just talking hoops and talking analytics and stuff. And you just learn so much from people that you just wouldn't be able to learn if you're just contained and within yourself. And so I always try to just get better every single day. That's one of the big mantras for our program, for Coach Pope, is for our players to get better every day. And he wants to do that for our staff. And so that's something for me I've always wanted to do is just continue to try to learn something new every single day. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the free newsletter, Slapping Glass Plus, and much more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Oh, do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping backboard. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. Let's roll. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs>